I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture, but do so through the lens of apostolic tradition. That is, the tradition that goes back to our Savior Jesus, to his apostles, and what they passed on to their disciples. Now, we'd love to have you become part of the show by adding your questions or comments, and you can do so by calling in, if you're in North America, to our number 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. That number won't work outside North America, but you can call in if you call country code 1, area code 205 271 Zero. You can also send us your questions and comments by via email by writing to scriptureandtradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Today, we'll take a look at how our Lord called a tax collector. Now, to be quite frank, for many of you are following in my book, Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee, a book you can still get at EWTNRC.com, the religious catalog, and there it is, item number 52885. However, today's material is not in that book. I don't know why. They didn't explain it to me, and I just sort of let the editors do what they were doing. But they did not include this chapter. I still am, because I liked it when I wrote it, and I still like it now. So we'll talk about it here, even though you won't find this in your book. We'll get back to Mark chapter 3, which is the next section in the book. But it's very important to deal with the call of uh, Levi, Matthew, and our Lord's meal with outcasts. Now we are taking a look, first of all, at St. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And in the first couple verses, we see in Mark 2, verse 13 to 14, that our Lord went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Le Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, of course, in the Gospel, gospel of Matthew, this is identified as St. Matthew. And it's not unusual for people to this day to have more than one name, right? And so Matthew, Levi, or Levi, Matthew. Matthew means um, gift of God. And the uh, name Levi, of course, comes from the Old Testament tribe of Levites. So that's who we're dealing with here. Now, we want to just give you some of the setting. 
that our Lord is walking beside the sea. By the sea, he means the Sea of Galilee. And I've explained before how the Sea of Galilee is, in our language, a lake. But there's no word in Hebrew to distinguish between lake and sea. It's yam. Okay, it's just one word for both. Uh, same in Arabic, it's called bahr. Bahr is the same word as sea, and it's Mediterranean Sea or Sea of Galilee. These are landlubbers who don't do a whole lot. And along the Sea of Galilee, there is a road. In fact, if you take a look at our screen, there's an image of a map. And you can see in purple going from Egypt that there's a purple line that goes along the Mediterranean coast. And then it takes a couple of turns. Um, one of the turns it makes is into, you know, at the city of Dor. You might see that on your map. At the city of Dor, it turns eastward toward the Sea of Galilee and goes along the Sea of Galilee and then goes up to Damascus. Damascus is not very far away from Israel. I think it's only about 40 miles. A quick ride unless, of course, you run into some of the landmines. That'll slow down traffic every time. But the, it's a fairly sh uh, short distance. And this road also goes up north through Lebanon, uh, and into Asia Minor, and that the, the road is extremely important. In fact, this is a very ancient road that goes back to the Stone Age. It's been used by people, or oh, at least over the last 12,000 years. Why did they start 12,000 years ago? Because there was this really quick global warming. The globe warmed tremendously and the glaciers that covered much of the northern hemisphere began to melt. And, that, and after that, these new civilizations got started, including Jericho, Byblos in Lebanon, and Damascus. Those are the Three of the oldest cities in the world. And the, the roads were connecting them. And in the Stone Age, the Neolithic period, they were already doing international trade along those roads, and those roads are still used today. There's another road called the King's Highway that goes through the modern kingdom of Jordan. If you look there, you can see there's a red roadway on the you know, east of Jerusalem. It, you see that it goes through Rabah and then up north. And that also, um, the, the, the King's Highway in, in red ink versus the way of the sea in purple, those two roads connected Africa, Asia, and Europe. Extremely important roads. And with them, you, know, you, you begin to get the key 
as to why the land of Israel is the promised land. It's an important clue because the people of Israel settled in between those two roads that connected Africa, Asia, and Europe. And since the Lord God called the people of Israel not to conquer the world with armies, but rather to share his word with them. He placed them between these two extremely ancient roads. And in that way, they were well situated between, on these, between these two roads as well as on the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, so that from this very distinctive place, the word of God could go to all the world and eventually come to the Western Hemisphere after the 1400s. So this is uh, something that is very important and it's part of why it's a promised land so that his promise wouldn't just be for the Israelite people, but for their mission, the mission given to Abram when he was called to become a blessing for all the clans of the earth. That was his mission. And, you know, of course, that it also entailed the people of Israel being prepared by becoming a holy people, and then especially to have Christ come to them. The Messiah came first for the people of Israel and then for others. So this is a very important part of the biblical history to know the importance of these roads, in particular this way of the sea. And our Lord is walking along that way because as we've seen in the past, our Lord is to go preaching. And there were other towns. Chorazin is up that road, uh, just a couple, few miles away from Capernaum. And you keep going along that road and you come to Bethsaida. And all of this is uh, very important. But it's also something that helps us understand why the tax collector is there. Because different parts of the road were under the control of different rulers. So Capernaum was in the control of King Herod, King Herod Antipas. And this Capernaum was the last chance to collect tolls before travelers took the road into the territory of his brother, the Tetrarch Philip, as the same brother from whom he took a wife. Remember, he took Philip's wife, Herodias? So that Philip. And before you get to Philip's territory, there is this chance to collect tolls one last time. Now, of course, it was 
to help pay for maintenance of the road. Very important thing. We still have toll roads in order to maintain the roads. But if you could make a few bucks extra, that was fine. And tax collectors did that. So this is one of the things going on. And we see here that Levi is seated. And again, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, he's called Matthew who's sitting at the tax booth. That's right on that road, just on the edge of Capernaum. And notice that our Lord goes up to him with absolute simplicity, not a long-developed argument or anything like that or uh, an essay. It's just simply, follow me. That's all he said, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, this is very much an imitation of our Lord's words um, to James and John and to Peter and Andrew, the two sets of brothers. You know, like them, Matthew got up and left everything. We see that in Luke. Chapter 5, verse 28. Matthew got up, left everything, and followed him. He obeyed Jesus. Very significant action. And again, it's just like Peter and Andrew, James and John, who left their boats and their nets. They left everything and followed him. And this is very clearly something that is meant to also be a model for us that we too are called to follow Christ and not to seek our own stuff, but to seek Christ and leave everything else. Now, there's a comment by St. Bede the Venerable. St. Bede was uh, an English monk and he uh, wrote a commentary, some homilies on the Gospels. And in book one, he writes about this episode. For the Lord himself, who outwardly called Matthew by a word, taught him inwardly with an invisible impulse so that he followed him. So that's why I said it was a very simple thing and that and ultimately... The decision to follow is a response to the gift of God's grace. The Holy Spirit would have been quietly working within Levi Matthew, the tax collector, to leave behind a very lucrative position. And a couple things that we ought to consider here. He walks up to him at this toll booth, you know, it'd be probably a fairly simple little shack with a table with money on it. And some of that money was intended for King Herod Antipas. And then the, some of that would go to the emperor. But 
Levi Matthew also knew he was able to skim a little bit of money off the top. That's how tax collectors lived. They, the Romans had a system of farming out the tax collection. And they motivated people for that job by giving them part of whatever they collected extra. Say, so this is how much I want. If you collect more than that, you get to keep it. Well, that would make the tax collectors very diligent. They wouldn't say to their relatives, oh, yeah, you can slide. No, no, no. I pay up because that's how they got paid. And this was something that was very important to him. He was obviously attracted to that way of life and lived it out. We'll talk more about some of the problems with that in a couple minutes. But there was also something about Jesus that was more attractive to Matthew than the money. Just like with Peter and Andrew, James and John, they saw something in Christ that they said, you know, this boat is not worth as much as following him. And they were willing to do so. So here's something I'd like you to think about. If you were Levi Matthew sitting at your tax collector's booth, what would there be in Jesus to attract you to him so that you would leave a pile of money behind you? Think about that. What was there about Jesus that was so attractive that you were willing to leave behind the money? And, you know, perhaps, you know, because he's living in Capernaum, Levi Matthew may well have heard Jesus preaching. Maybe there was something in what Jesus said that attracted him. Maybe he saw some of the miracles. Probably did, because it's just down the road. To Peter's house is on that road. Still there. The ruins of it. And, you know, um, it could also be the fact that tax collectors were really really hated and we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes and maybe just because our Lord came up to a hated tax collector that he said wow this guy takes me seriously he cares about me and he wants me to follow him who knows but what's important is for you to figure out what would attract you to our Lord what would have attracted you to Jesus? And speak to our Lord in your heart about what it is that draws you to him. Ask him about that. Speak to him about that. And then perhaps conclude the prayer with an Our Father. We are called to do the will of the Father here on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray that his will be done. Or pray the soul of Christ, either one or both. And make that a way for you to reflect on the call of Levi Matthew. Now, we're not done with him yet because his call 
leads to another level of good. So we'll come back in a couple minutes and take a look at the next part of his uh, encounter with Jesus. So please stay with us. Before we get back to this passage in St. Mark's Gospel, I just want to invite you to join us in about two and a half weeks when we will have the EWTN Family Celebration. It will be October 1st at the Phoenix Convention Center. That's in Phoenix, Arizona. Now, you'll have a number of talks from various television and radio hosts like Johnette Williams, Marcus Groda is coming out there, Father Pedro Nunez, and then the Jesuits, Father Robert Spitzer and me. So you'll hear from all of us. And we'd love to have you register for this event. Go to EWTN.com slash Family Celebration, EWTN.com slash Family Celebration. Okay? Hopefully you'll get a chance to be there. And it won't be 120 anymore. It'll, the temperature will be coming down a little bit. Also, want at this point, too, to very much extend our condolences to the people of Great Britain. You know, the loss of... Queen Elizabeth is very, very moving. Now, she's been the queen of Britain over most of my life. Uh, and you know, her son, now King Charles, and I just uh, about, oh, about eight, nine months, not about nine months apart in age. And, you know, so, uh, you know, this is... Uh, has been part of the world's history. And it's not just a part of the world's history as one character among many. She really was an outstanding global leader. She expressed out loud, and even more importantly, she lived tremendous service to her people that her service to other folks and throughout the whole commonwealth, not only to the people of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, but throughout the whole British commonwealth, she went to other nations and she did what she could to help improve things. And during her reign, many, if not most, of their former colonies got their freedom and had self-rule, but that didn't mean that she cut themselves or cut England off from those nations and continued to reach out and to help development in these countries. So 
We pray for the people of England. We pray for the repose of her soul. And we pray for King Charles III, that he be at least as good a monarch as his mother. And also pray that the rest of politicians have a sense that they're there to serve the people around them and that they be as generous in as good a humor and with as much dignity as she showed. That's, that's been a delight just to be reminded in some of the pictures we've seen of the wonderful sense of dignity and pleasant good humor that she showed. Lots of tensions in our modern world and sometimes leaders get a little mean she gave a good example of gentle guidance to overcome such obnoxious qualities. She was very, very good, and we appreciate her and pray for her. All right, let's now return to St. Mark chapter uh, 2, beginning with verse 15, where our Lord has table fellowship with outcasts. Now it says, as he sat at table in Matthew's house, Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Now this invitation from Jesus to follow, uh, you know, for Levi Matthew to follow him leads to Jesus following Matthew to his house where he shares his food. And that kind of hospitality is so classically Middle Eastern. To invite somebody over is a sign of honor. And the host is the one who feels honored by having a guest show up. They're very, that's very much part of the culture. And it says in, in the text that he was sitting, um, where he sat at table in his house. To sit at table means that Jesus had been given the place of honor. He was uh, given the, the, the chief place at the table. And these other tax collectors and sinners were sharing in that table fellowship with Jesus. Now, you can imagine if you were invited to one of your favorite um, you know, stars, whether movie star, music, or, or maybe a politician or some international leader, you'd be honored to be at their table. That's the way these sinners and tax collectors have to be. Now, in Judaism, being in table fellowship with a rabbi was an extremely important you know, experience. In fact, when I studied rabbinic Judaism under um, you know, one of the really fine uh, rabbinic scholars, uh, Rabbi Silberman, Lou Silberman was uh, one of my teachers. 
uh, he had to spend a lot of time on discussions in the Talmud about table fellowship and proper behavior and, the, and how true disciples of a rabbi would grow in humility and service by being at the table fellowship. And it was a great privilege to be seated with a rabbi. And it the Talmud would describe the roles and privileges and duties that belonged to the disciples of a rabbi when they're at table. However, in this scene, our Lord is at table with sinners, public sinners. Everybody knows they're sinners and tax collectors. And I didn't mention it before, but the rabbis made it a rule that if there is a tax collector in your family, nobody from another family can marry into your family. So if you are a tax collector, other people won't let their sons or daughters marry your family members. They won't marry your sister or brother because they're considered unclean because of you. This was a very, very important thing. So tax collectors were not allowed to make friends or marriages with decent folks. That's why they hung out with the sinners. And that was a very important part. And you could say that they sort of formed a fellowship of the unscrupulous. That would have been a good way to characterize them. Now, at this point, the Pharisees are scandalized. And it says that when the scribes of the Pharisees, scribes were the educated theologians of the Pharisee party, okay? So when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now pay attention again. The scribes don't ask Jesus directly. They go to his disciples. Not too unlike the way they were thinking to themselves at the healing of the paralytic. How can this man say that his sins are forgiven? Only God can forgive sins. They kept that to themselves. They didn't directly speak to Jesus. Here, too, they don't address Jesus directly. They go to his disciples. Why is he with, this, with tax collectors? And that is probably meant to criticize the apostles for being Christ's disciples. And you know the difference between a disciple and an, apost uh, 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 and an apostle. A disciple is someone who is taught. An apostle is someone who is sent out. Okay? And th that's, those are rabbinic, the tra Greek translations of rabbinic terms of the people who were sent out by a rabbi versus those who were his students. And the disciples don't really have an answer. You know, it's one of those things that 
they, I'm sure they were wondering this experience of following Jesus is relatively new and they don't know his mind yet. So Jesus heard the criticism and he said to the scribes, those who are well <clears throat> have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Well, you know, he starts off with an observation from life. If you're healthy, you tend not to go to the doctor. Now, I'm not recommending that. But remember, in their days, they didn't have many doctors. I would strongly urge you to make sure and get your checkups, even though you feel good. You know, so don't, uh, especially uh, we men have to do that. Women are more prone to go and get a checkup. We men sometimes skip it because um, we don't feel bad. Um, it's good to get a checkup, so I'm not against that. But in general, when people feel healthy, they don't go to seek the doctors, only when they get sick. Everybody can observe that kind of behavior. From that, he explains that he came not for the righteous who are spiritually healthy, but for the sinners. His mission is to the sinners. And this is a very important perspective, especially since part of the Pharisees' belief is that this is where they, they thought that once every single Jewish person obeyed every one of the 613 commandments of the Torah, if everybody just obeyed that for a half hour, everybody together all at the same time obeyed every commandment, nobody committed a sin, that was the opportunity, the window of opportunity for the Messiah to come. But when the Messiah does come, he comes for sinners, not despite sinners, but because of them. He comes to redeem them. And that's a very different perspective. Now, we have to ask ourselves, do I recognize that I myself am one of those sinners for whom he came and that he came to have table fellowship with us sinners, including inviting us to the Eucharist? Secondly, I have to look around and see how willing am I to welcome sinners into the community of faith? How willing am I to go out there and evangelize and win sinners over? Or do I say, oh God, those people are nasty. Or as we see in our culture, these are bad people. I have to cancel them. We live at a time when sinners, well, by certain definitions are canceled. If I disagree with you, I have to cancel you because you must be bad if you disagree with me because my ideas are good and your ideas are bad. And we see that going on throughout the country. 
That is not the way of Christianity. And we have to remember this, that when we deal with fellow sinners, it's to call them in. And some people might even say, well, I don't want to go to church. There are too many hypocrites there. Say, we people in church want to welcome you to join us because there's room for one more hypocrite. You'll fit right in. Your hypocrisy may be different than mine, but all of us have that problem. And this is the reality. So Christ came to call the sinners. Do we need to make changes before we're ready to receive communion? Yes. Do we have to have an act of faith? Yes. Do we need to repent of our sins? Christ said so. But when we repent in faith, then he invites us in to that table fellowship. And we are called not to cancel anybody, but rather to invite them in. They may, we may need to call them to repent. We may need to say you can't keep doing the sin and then have communion. You have to repent of the sin. But we know that you can repent and we call you to it. That's why we have to, to do this. All right. Let's start off with a question. We have a caller, Julie in Ontario, Canada. I assume it's Ontario, Canada, not California, right? Yes, hello. Hi, how are you? Oh, Father, oh, I'm very good, thank you. And yourself? I've been wanting to call you for many years because I'm not a computer person. I'm a phone person. Okay, so what can we do for you this fine day? Okay, Father, um, I'm very close to the church, me. I try my best to go daily mass. And, and I have three children, um, two are married. One is at home. He's here right now because on purpose I called now. And he's 21. And they walked from the faith. And we debate a lot religion. And they ask lots of good questions. And because uh, one of them, he says he's agnostic. The other one, he's atheist. So the thing is... He asked, me, he asked me a very difficult question, and I, I tried my best. I asked three priests about this question. He told me, Mom, we know that God knows everything before the person is born. So if he knows that, he knows peop the people that are going to hell, why doesn't he choose not to create them instead of knowing to go to hell? And I asked three priests, Father, I wasn't happy because they answered me like me. I said, I say to my son, it's our free will. God doesn't send people to hell, but he keeps telling me that he knows that they're going to hell. Sure. So me, when I cannot, when I cannot solve s such a difficult question, like, like, like St. Augustine, you know, when he was on the beach, you know, I say to him, this must be a mystery. Because well, I, I don't oh, know. I have no okay. idea. All right. All right. Let, let me try to give a little bit of help here. First of all, um, is your son an absolutely morally perfect person? No, no, none of us. No, okay, right. And I'm sure that growing up, you might have pointed out a few of his sins to him, right? Mm-hmm, for sure. Yes. And just like your mother did to you and my mother did to me. Yes, mother. That's, you know, we're, we're sinners. Now, if our Lord said, okay, Someone like Stalin is so wicked, I just won't let him get created. But then it leaves another level of 
bad person around. And you say, okay, yeah, well, this person's going to be bad too. I'm going to eliminate that one. And then, and if you kept on going, believe me, believe me, based on some of the mail that I get, there are people that would say, why did you create Pacwa? You know, what a dumb idea to make him. And you can keep going through the whole human race. At what point would you say, well, this person is so good that we'll only allow them to live? How many people would actually get born? Mm-hmm. Not many. Not many, if any. As a matter of fact, when you get down to it, after the Blessed Mother, nobody else would be born. And this principle that you start to eliminate the bad people, you won't be able to stop because that principle leads to eliminating all kinds of people. In fact, that's what made someone like Stalin so wicked. He eliminated everybody who disagreed with him because they were preventing the revolution. They were preventing the success of the Soviet Union, so you killed them. Hitler was trying to eliminate the people that were not going to be part of the master race. And he started eliminating people he thought should be eliminated. And the same thing with Mao Zedong, the same thing with Pol Pot, the same thing happened with Genghis Khan. It also happened with Tamerlane. You see that these people are called wicked because they are doing what your son suggests. Get rid of the bad ones, as I understand it. And in doing so, they become bad. This is one of, this is another kind of conundrum. And your son has to to consider this. He has a few people he would have liked to have eliminated. And I wish that there was no Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, or Pol Pot, or a few other people. The world could have done without Tamerlane and Genghis Khan. But they were doing, because they had power, exactly what your son suggests. And that's not God's way. Because among the various people of the world, there are also many who are saints, including many of the people who went to concentration camps and became heroically good, either in the gulag of the Soviet Union or in the concentration lager of Hitler. There are a number of people who are still coming up for canonization and many, many millions of others who were never canonized but lived heroic sanctity as they were being eliminated by these perfectionists. And our attitude is not to seek the elimination of people. 
but their conversion. Your son is, and many like him, he's not alone, and it's not a bad thought, but he and many others are saying, God, just get rid of the bad people instead of asking our Lord, Lord, how do you want to use me to improve my life and the lives of the people around me? How do you want me to go to the prisons and preach to the other sinners? How do you want me to go to the streets and find the people on drugs and other situations and win them for Christ? That is the way our Lord sets up. That's what we see with Levi Matthew, and that's what we need to do today. That would be my response. All right, I'm going to take a little break. We'll come back in just a couple of minutes, so please stay with us. just want to remind you to join me for EWTN Live tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We will be talking with Father Donald Haggerty about the mysteries, difficulties, and joys of prayer. We'll also take a look at how silent contemplation as taught by St. John of the Cross prepares our hearts to be illuminated and to be surprised by an unspeakable love from God. So this is one of the things that we'll look at. Hopefully you'll enjoy the conversation. All right, now we have a, someone who is watching um, and he's watching live right now and he sent us a question from YouTube. Father Pacwa, why do we say the Apostles' Creed for the Rosary, yet we cite the Nicene Creed in Mass. The Nicene Creed is used at Mass um, as a longer form of our act of faith. Uh, the Nicene Creed came a bit later than the Apostles' Creed, and in the Nicene Creed we see a bit more uh, complicated, more developed, and more detailed theology of Jesus Christ and the whole Blessed Trinity. In the Apostles' Creed, it's a shorter summary that is easier to memorize, quite frankly, and people can say that in their private recitation of the Rosary, and it's just easier to remember. Now, of course, they, there's nothing in church doctrine to preclude you saying the Nicene Creed when you say the Rosary. You could say that if you wish, but normally uh, most people memorize the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed we usually read at Mass. 
because it is uh, richer, more detailed, and it's become part of our liturgy. Make sure we have the faith. Okay? And then we have another one um, uh, that's come to us. Uh, it's an email from Clyde. It says, Father Mitch, in Luke chapter 7, verses 18 to 23, John the Baptist sent two of his messengers to ask Jesus if he is the Son of God. However, when John baptizes Jesus in Luke 3, 21 to 22, it says, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. If John recognizes Jesus as he baptizes our Lord, why did he need to ask his followers to confirm that Jesus is God? Isn't John the cousin of Jesus, Clyde in Louisiana? Well, Clyde, first of all, pay attention to the question. In, it's a little bit more precise. When John's disciples, um, you know, are sent to Jesus, they don't ask so much that he's the Son of God. They ask, are you he who is to come? Now, where does that question come from? It's from the end of the prophet Malachi. And it comes just before the prophet Malachi says that uh, about he who is to come will enter into the temple. And then it goes on and gives a prophecy that Elijah will come. Now, remember, you got to put a lot of things together here, that when the angel Gabriel announces to Zechariah the birth of John the Baptist, he said to Zechariah that the boy will have the spirit of Elijah. And in fact, John wore camel hair and a camel's leather belt as his clothing, the way Elijah did. You see that in the second book of Kings. And so John the Baptist understood that he had the spirit of Elijah. He was acting like the prophet Elijah. But he's wondering if Jesus is the one who is to come that he was preparing for. And that's what his question is. And the reason he's asking is John was still in prison and he expected to be executed. And he may well have been asking that in order to find out, um, excuse me, if you're he who is to come, then it wouldn't be a bad idea to show yourself now so that uh, I can get out of this prison and not be beheaded. So that's what's going on there, okay? Hopefully that'll help you, Clyde. Then we also have a question from Ahmed. Uh, he says, what does the Catholic Church teach about the Jewish people during the end times? I was taught that the Jews will convert to the Catholic faith before the second coming, but many Catholics in the church have been influenced by Zionism and the replacement theology that is taught by evangelicals, Ahmed. Um, you know, there will be 
Uh, the, the, the scriptures do predict that there will be a, a very large conversion of Jewish people. I, and in fact, there are many Jewish people who have become Christians. Um, you know, the Messianic Jewish movement is part of that. Uh, and there are, in fact, parishes throughout the modern state of Israel that are Catholic parishes for Jewish people who have converted to Catholicism. Uh, Jerusalem, I think, is the largest of the parishes, but also in Haifa, Tel Aviv, and Be'er Sheva. Um, I've been to those communities and uh, offered Mass in Hebrew uh, for them uh, a number of times when I lived there. So um, this is something that, you know, we uh, say, okay, we, we pray for the full salvation and any other theories I don't get into, I'm going to let God, our Lord, pour out His grace upon people as He sees fit. And this is, um, I'll let our Lord take care of the end times. Um, my job is to do my job, proclaim the gospel. As I like to say, our Lord is management, I'm in sales. That would apply to you too, Ahmed. Uh, also, many Muslims are becoming Christian throughout the world as well. All right, I have to manage time, which we are out of. So may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of His ways by His peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, thank you for your support. Please continue to keep us between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll pay our bills too. Thank you. Thank you.